Acts chapter 9 this morning. Testimonials have long been used in advertising. It seems they add a personal touch and are able to convince people of the hope that that product being sold is actually going to work. And somehow over the years, that means if a professional athlete says it works, it must, right? And so huge amounts of money, millions of dollars are poured into endorsements because somebody who society thinks is somebody says this product works. Somebody's hair grew and filled in a bald spot with some new treatment. The grass stains came out of your son's baseball pants if you used the right detergent. The weight fell off if you just took the supplement. We're drawn to buying a product when somebody tells us it works. Well, so it is with the gospel's power. When it works in us, when change is seen in us, people take notice. And it seems there are two results. One, the kingdom advances as they too are drawn to believe. And number two, they see a change in your life and glorify God. In other words, you are a living commercial for the power of God to transform lives. And when people see that commercial, they too may believe and they may glorify your Father in heaven. This is the great hope of living our lives in such a way that gospel change is evident. This is our theme this morning. As your life is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you advance the kingdom and glorify God. We saw it in Titus 2, our affirmation of faith. This grace of God appears. And what does it do? It teaches us. It changes us so that we renounce the ungodly way of living And now we live this self-controlled, upright, godly life in the midst of the present age. In other words, the age hasn't changed. It's the same wicked world. But you've changed. And that's rooted in the grace of God that has appeared to us. Grace came to bring about change that was noticed in the midst of a wicked world. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul speaks of the testimony of the new believers whose life transformation was so stunning, the apostle goes on to say, I hardly have need to say anything because your lives say it all. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you 
and they report how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The the great missionary effort was, yes, the word was spreading, but as it spread, people said, oh, we've heard this before. We've seen this before in the change in the people we live with. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In a sense, that's your story. Though you may not have bowed to a physical hand-carved idol, you worshiped something else. You lived life for someone else. And now you say you live your life in surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. In your serving him, in your imitation of him this week, may it be that people see the gospel change so that when they hear the message, Jesus can transform your life, they think, I've, I've seen that before in my coworker, in that next door neighbor that used to live on our street. As your life is transformed by the gospel, you advance the kingdom and glorify God. What's the transformation we're talking about? Well, it's your conversion. We studied that last week. You have a conversion story. What I was before God saved me, how God saved me, and what I am after God saved me. In that radical transformation of becoming a Christian, there is change that can be seen, that can draw people to the kingdom and cause them to glorify God. But that transformation continues in our gospel words as you tell your story, in our gospel works as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, men will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Frankly, it comes down to daily change and sanctification. Your turning from God or turning from idols to serve God may be evident in your parenting as you acknowledge your anger and repent of it and seek to manifest the Holy Spirit's temperance in your life. By repenting of sin and yielding to the Spirit daily, we are living as that commercial of transformation. We're showing that God can change our hearts from sinners to saints, and we're saying God can change our hearts from being angry and selfish and covetous. As a spouse, when you choose a soft answer instead of anger, you're manifesting gospel power. It transforms our lives. As a teenager, when you choose to honor and respect your parent rather than to roll your eyes and stomp off to your bedroom, you're choosing to display you're a living commercial that the gospel can change the heart. I don't have to live in selfish sinfulness. And when people see that there is hope beyond self and sin, they are drawn to the kingdom of God. And they glorify him, Jesus says. I want to show you this transformational commercial that announces the kingdom and the glory of God in our text in three different examples. Example number one is Saul. We studied him last week. He's on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem to go and persecute the church. 
God arrests him on that road, and he is converted. His faith rests now not in his own pharisaical self-righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. He repents of his sin. He believes. And now he is a servant of Christ, serving the church rather than seeking to persecute it. In verse 26, this scenario unfolds that Saul is returning to Jerusalem and everyone is a bit hesitant to engage Saul. And rightly so. They well remember when Saul was last in Jerusalem. Now, it would have been years before. We, we pieced together a timeline from Acts, from Corinthians, and from Galatians, and we know that Saul left Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts 9, breathing out threatenings against the church. He's going to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, he's converted. In Galatians, he tells us that before he comes back to Jerusalem, he spent three years in the wilderness being taught by God, he says. Now, we know he had a vast knowledge of the scriptures of the day, the Old Testament. So somehow in those three years, those Old Testament scriptures were taking shape in his mind and that he was seeing how they all pointed to Jesus, the Messiah. After those three years, he preaches in Damascus. They try to kill him. He's let down in the basket, as we hear in chapter 9, and now he comes to Jerusalem. And his ministry is not well received there. They know well the history of Saul. He was the persecutor. He would drag women or men off to prison if they would not renounce the name of Christ. They remember as he stood smugly by, holding the garments of those who wanted a little more freedom to pick up a slightly larger stone to stone Stephen. This is the Saul that they know and remember. And now he comes saying he wants to get to know more of the people in the church for ministry purposes. And they just aren't going to believe it. And I don't think we really find it in ourselves to blame them. And yet verse 27 tells us Barnabas is willing to take this risk. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and, to, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas actually calms the hearts of the people that are afraid this is some kind of ruse and reminds them, no, he, he's not just a beginner. He's actually professed faith, but his life has supported that profession. He is speaking everywhere of Christ and is making enemies because of it. Just a side note here, Barnabas isn't the focus of the story. The theme of the story seems to be these transformational accounts. But many of us could use a dose of Barnabas. Remember back in chapter 4, his name's Joseph, but he's nicknamed Barnabas because it means son of consolation or encouragement. They nicknamed this guy because he just always seemed ready to jump in there and help with whatever was needed. 
So here's the guy no one trusts, and there's Barnabas, kind of stepping forward and willing to engage and, and tackle the hard cases. This stuff was right up his alley. And so he's the one bringing Saul to the apostles, speaking for him. But because Barnabas just functioned this way, it's amazing that the apostles take it from Barnabas. If Barnabas is on board with this, so are we. And Paul begins his ministry in Jerusalem. I don't know what a dose of Barnabas would look like for you this week. To be a person of encouragement. But be ready for something unusual if you surrender to a Barnabas kind of life. God may ask you to serve someone in a unique way that defies common sense, but makes perfect Holy Spirit sense. So I have no idea how to apply a dose of Barnabas, but just know maybe God even has that part of the story for you this morning. But back to Saul, who now begins preaching boldly in verse 28, in the name of the Lord, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. They are the very ones that accompanied Saul in the death of Stephen. And now they are seeking to kill Saul as well. Because it doesn't matter if Saul's an acquaintance or one of their own. What matters is he is now taking up the way. He's following in the way that Stephen was in and that these other believers are in. The transformation is clear in our first example. Saul has gone from persecutor to preacher. Acts 1 began breathing out threats against the church, and now he's breathing out the good news of the gospel in verse 28, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And what is the result of this transformational account of Saul? A whole chapter given to this life transformation, and we get to verse 31, and we have the conclusion of the story of Saul's conversion. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. The transformation is Saul going from persecutor to preacher, and the result is the church multiplied. Remember, our theme is, as that gospel transforms our lives, it advances the kingdom. It's, a, it's an announcement for the kingdom of God, and men are drawn to it, and they give him glory. And here we see it, this transformation in the life of Saul, and the fruit of that transformation is the church is growing. People are seeing this change and marveling at it. Saul preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, verse 28, is what we're saying, a commercial for the life-transforming power of the gospel. I'm sure there were people who still didn't believe it, even as Paul was preaching, and they were hearing of his messages and his acceptance by the church. You could imagine being good friends with Stephen or a family member, thinking, I can't believe it, this, there's no way. 
And do we not have those very thoughts about people that we know are lost? There's just no way they're not going to believe this. they, They grew up hearing it and they've rejected it. There's no way. And yet the story is here for us so that we would know the gospel on display in your life is a commercial for the life-changing power of the gospel. I want you to hear Paul's language, what Paul was saying at this very time that we're reading about in Acts chapter 9. And it's there in Galatians chapter 1. He tells his story of seeking to persecute the church violently, he says, trying to destroy it in Galatians 1.13. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And listen to his conclusion. And they glorified God in me. In this transformation of persecutor to preacher, Paul writes, they glorified God in me, not in his accomplishment, but in the transformation that was evident in his life. We are billboards advertising change. We're saying this product works. And that product is the gospel, the good news that Jesus transforms lives. We'll look at verse 33 for our second example of kingdom advancing, God glorifying transformation. Change that is going to invite the church to blossom and invite men to give glory to God. Verse 33. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found this man, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Be encouraged, parents. You've been saying it would take a miracle for your kid to make his bed, right? Well, here it is. Here it is. Rise and make your bed. It's biblical to make beds. 
right? Well, make your bed could also kind of mean get up and get going and get on with life. The, the language is a little less clear than like straightening the sheets and laying pillows nicely on the bed. But nonetheless, a miracle. The transformation is clear. From paralyzed for eight years, we don't know how or why. We can imagine the scenarios, especially in their culture and their economy, a lot of manual labor, some fall from a building. He could have a broken back, maybe a stroke left him paralyzed. We don't know. But clearly, eight years of suffering, eight years of establishing this guy's not getting better. He can't fix his impotence, his inability, his brokenness. He is stuck. And yet, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, is led to bring about this miraculous healing from paralyzed to walking. And lest anyone wonder where this power came from, Peter is really clear. This isn't of me and my initiative or will or power. Jesus Christ heals you. That being true, Get up, take your bed, move on, walk. And the transformation was clear. So was the result, verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, we have to recognize there's more going on than just a man walking and these people get saved. But remember what Paul said, they glorified God in me, but that has a little more detail to it. They understood he once hated Jesus and the way, and now he's proclaiming Jesus and the way. They saw the transformation, and so it is with this lame man. Peter is traveling everywhere preaching this good news that Jesus can rescue you from your sin that he can restore what sin has broken and ruined. They saw in the healing of paralyzed legs a picture of the gospel's power to restore what is broken and ruined by sin. They weren't saved just because a man rose up and walked. They were saved because Peter was saying, Jesus can fix what is broken. And To make that clear, I'll tell this man to walk. This miracle patterns what Jesus did in Mark 2 when he stood before a crowd and the friends brought the layman and lowered him through the ceiling. And Jesus said, so that you would know I have power to forgive sin, I say, rise up and walk. Because if he can heal broken legs, he can heal broken souls. It's an illustration of transformation that points us to the advance of the kingdom and the glory of God. And that's exactly what happens. They turned to the Lord. Example number three. Verse 36. Traveling on to another city, Peter is teaching, he's preaching. And there's a disciple in a nearby town named Tabitha. 
Tabitha or Dorcas, one Hebrew, one is the Greek name, but it's the same name, means gazelle. It's like a sweet, beautiful name for a girl, a, a deer. Tabitha became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Example three of transformation designed to advance the kingdom and bring glory to God's name is a girl who has to suffer physically and even die. Tabitha. Her biography is a mere sketch in our text. It simply says she was full of good works and acts of charity. Well, like our brief aside as we considered Barnabas, think on that summary, that description of Tabitha. Full of good works and acts of charity. Seems to be reflected in the text. All these widows were there in these garments that were made by this girl. It's, it's as if they were there mourning, but they're reminding themselves of all the good they had received from the ministry of this girl. We could probably ask ourselves, what two phrases would describe our manifest godliness among others. Because as soon as Tabitha's name was mentioned, full of good works and, and charity. So, so what would people describe us with? What language comes to mind for people that live life with us and should we be gone by death or moving on, there would be this vacuum left and they would say, they filled this void. This is what they did among us. Again, a lesson to be learned there from kind of a subtle detail in the story. But we could hear Jesus teaching in Matthew 23, the greatest among you will be servant of all. I don't know that Tabitha was a somebody in the church but behind the scenes, she was always serving and loving. It's a powerful testimony. And yet God had another transformation for Tabitha that he designed for the spread of his name. And the transformation begins in verse 37. She became ill and died. And then it culminates in verse 40. She opened her eyes. She sat up. It's another fascinating story because it mimics both Old Testament stories of the prophets and a story of Jesus healing a young girl. And in the gospel account, as Jesus heals that young girl, we're told that Peter, James, and John went with him into the room and witnessed his healing. And there, as Jesus healed that girl, he didn't use her name, but he used a description of her. He used the word for young girl. And that language would be recorded in the Gospels as Talitha, arise. And it's fascinating that Peter goes into this room with a girl whose name sounds quite the same. Not Talitha, young girl, but Tabitha, young deer. And he says, Tabitha, arise. 
But we already know from Peter's healing of the layman that Peter wasn't marching around thinking, I have all this power. Oh, I remember what Jesus did when he went up into a room and healed a girl they thought was dead. So I'll go up there and heal her. No, we know Peter is full of faith and, and, and he's recognizing this is the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit in him. And yet, he goes up into that room, he puts everyone else, he kneels down and he prays because this isn't in him to do. And then he just does what he saw Jesus do. And he asks her to arise and she opens her eyes. She sits up, he takes her by the hand and leads her down to the church. Well, what is the result of this transformation of being dead to being alive. That's a pretty radical transformation. This is a pretty big billboard. If you're looking for change, this is a big one. I was dead and now I'm alive. You could work through the trivia question on your way home from church. How many people are recorded in the Bible that could have this kind of story of transformation? And yet all those stories are designed to point to one reality, that Jesus Christ can rescue sinners from their deadness in sin. Ephesians 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins, but by the grace of God, we are made alive. She goes from being dead to alive. And you can see in your Bible, again, the result. It's as as if each of these stories has the transformation account. Saul from persecuted a preacher. What was the end result? The church multiplies. The name of Christ spreads. And in that spreading, Peter goes to a town. And he heals a man who is lame. So we have from paralyzed to walking. And what is the result? The church increases and many turn to the Lord. One more account. Tabitha is dead and now she's alive. To what end? Not just a few more years on this earth. That's kind of a little side part of the story for her. But the bigger picture is here for us in verse 42. This healing, this bringing back from the dead became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. It's a simple format unfolding in Acts chapter 9. Life transformation that advances the kingdom and brings glory to God. In Saul, in Aeneas, in Tabitha. Radical transformations that when people see it, they they must reckon with it. And it's not that every single person believed, but the reality is as the gospel changes our lives, people will be drawn to the kingdom and to the glory of God. Many believed in the Lord. God was willing to to have this fantastic display of power. It's a display of his kindness in drawing sinners to himself, of showing them in a way their eyes could see and behold a glimpse of the glory of the restoration of broken souls. 
But as we close, I want to point you to one other Godward change in our text that points to the glory of the gospel. The last note of transformation is subtle. Saul's is really obvious, the story of Aeneas, and now the story of Tabitha. But in verse 43, there's a bit of narrative detail that quietly points to change. In verse 43, we simply read of Peter, he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. But I think what we're being told here is that Peter's mindset is beginning to change. There is a gospel transformation in the, at work in the life of Peter that is causing him to think a little differently. He is moving from proclaiming a Jewish message to proclaiming a Jesus message, the gospel He's beginning to understand the commission that Jesus gave him to spread the gospel from Jerusalem and the Jews to all the peoples of the world, the Gentiles. And we see a hint of this change in the very last word of the text. Even in English, it is set apart in a way that draws attention to it. It doesn't tell us that he stayed in Joppa with this Tanner named Simon. That would emphasize who it was. Rather, the text says he stayed with Simon, comma, a tanner. So that the tanning aspect of who this Simon guy is would catch our attention. It's the last thing we're left with for emphasis in the Greek language. So then our question is, why is being a tanner significant to the gospel's changing of Peter's mindset. And it's because, as you could read in the book of Leviticus, chapter 5 and in chapter 11, both of them define the uncleanness of handling dead bodies. Now, in other parts of the law, it's even physical human bodies, when if they are dead and you have to handle them in preparation for burial, you are ceremonially unclean for a time. But to deal with dead animals, Leviticus is clear. Whether that animal is clean or unclean, you become unclean. So a tanner, one who spent his days preparing hides for all the various purposes of leather, you were kind of perpetually unclean. Not not the kind of crowd that's going to be invited to the Jewish synagogue to hear the good news. And yet we're being told that somehow Peter, with all of his Jewish conviction, and it'll come out in other stories throughout uh, Acts and other epistles, but at least here we see kind of a, a, a break in the armor The gospel is is making its way into Peter's thinking. His Jewish convictions about being unclean as a tanner are giving way to his commission to be a witness to the nations. And he stays in Joppa for many days with someone he would have considered unclean, and now he just considers them as someone who needs to hear the gospel. And that's change. Subtle, but it's change. It's 
kingdom advancing change. It's God glorifying change. His understanding of being clean is moving beyond just having his hands washed ceremonially to having his soul cleansed eternally by the blood of Christ. That's Simon's hope of being clean. Not some ritual for temporary status among the Jews, but a life-changing reality for a permanent status as a child of God. Transformation. Acts chapter 9. We know the story of Saul, but there's these two other accounts, Aeneas and Tabitha. But it's all telling one story. That when the gospel transforms a life, it should be evident. And that manifestation of change will draw people to ask, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? Why do you live the way you do? What do you mean you're a Christian? And whether they understand your answers or not, Jesus says they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Ultimately, one day, that means their knee will bow and they will recognize him. But even now in their unbelief, it may mean they at least have to acknowledge, as Peter writes in his letter to the church, that you really are a godly person. You've got the good works to back up what you're talking about. As your life is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you advance the kingdom and glorify God. So what do you need to do this week to make gospel change evident in your life? At times it's going to look like telling someone, Man, I, I sinned against you. I'm sorry for my attitude or my, my temper. Will you forgive me? I need, I need the gospel to keep changing me. I'm not what I should be. Others just need to be renewing your mind. It's the great hope of change in Romans 2. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get into God's word. See the character of Christ and imitate it. Keep becoming more and more like him. May we yield to the Spirit's work of life-changing, fruit-bearing in our lives so that every bit of change, every step of growth will add to our witness of the kingdom of God and the glory of our King. May the change in our lives, may our repenting and our renewing, may our righteous works, may our godliness this week be so evident that the name of Christ is advanced and the glory of God swells because we understand the gospel's power to change us. Heavenly Father, thank you that the work of transformation is rooted in the effectual victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. It was finished upon that cross, we sang. 
by the righteous life and the atoning death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been changed from sinners to saints. We have gone from being crippled to leaping and praising the Lord. We have gone from being dead in sin to being alive to righteousness. May that transformation be noticeable this week in our lives so that we would see what we hear in our text, people turning to the Lord, the church multiplying, glory being given to you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Change us and use that change for your glory, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.